Good morning, church family. It is really so good to worship with you. And I'm just especially appreciative today of our musicians and our AV people. Uh, thank you for these thoughtful songs. I agree. <laughs> and thank you in the fellowship hall. I forgot my slide advancer today, so I left during one of your songs so rudely. And, but I did get a chance to peek my head for the first time ever into the fellowship hall. I've heard rumors about what they do in there because <laughs> I can't be in there to find out. And uh, I've, I've heard that during the sermon they might be doing open microphone, so I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> but I want to just express appreciation for the faithfulness of so many using their spiritual gifts and really ministering with their heart. Um, it's encouraging. And you know the world needs some encouragement right now. <laughs> Have you noticed? We all are desperate for that. And with that in mind, I want to invite you to turn with the Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to continue to look at what Jesus had to say about difficult circumstances. We're looking at the Beatitudes. I've taken liberty to rename those the Reattitudes for two reasons. One, we all need an attitude adjustment about now. But two, I'm considering these resurrection attitudes. The message of Jesus Christ and what we celebrate during this Easter tide season is that God willingly laid down his life, his own son. He laid down his life on our behalf so that we could live again and we could have something new that was better than the old if we're only willing to lay down, if we're only willing to come to the cross of Jesus and to put aside the things that sometimes maybe make more sense to us. As you read through the Beatitudes, and we started this last week, we'll reread them again in just a moment. I think what you're going to notice is that Jesus is describing a number of difficult circumstances that we all find ourselves in in life, but he's turning human logic on its head, and he's saying things that don't make sense to us. Happy are those who are empty spiritually, and they know it, the bankrupt. Happy are those who are grieving who are experiencing loss and difficulty in life. And the list goes on and on and on, and it ends actually with happier those who are persecuted. If these words seem surprising to you, they're supposed to. The gospel is powerful for us. Jesus invades every part of our life, and he demands in order for us to follow him, that we surrender anything that we would consider to be from ourselves and our own accomplishment in favor of relying fully on him and not on our circumstances. Would you stand with me as you're able? And I want to read together with you Matthew chapter 5. And we're looking at eight characteristics, eight circumstances of what it looks like to fully depend upon God. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be filled.
for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I'm sure you've noticed this, but each one of these eight Beatitudes has two parts. The first part is what you might think of as a circumstance, and in many cases, kind of a burden. It's a burden to be mourning. It's a burden to be grieving or to be persecuted or to realize that you're spiritually bankrupt in and of yourself. But the second part is a promise or a blessing. And God is offering to us that he is available to us in any circumstance and perhaps especially in our most difficult circumstances. And here Jesus says surprisingly, happy are those who are brokenhearted. Happy and blessed They can be rendered with the same word, just so you know. Fortunate are you and I when we have the opportunity of walking through losses in this world. It doesn't make sense to us outside of Jesus. I want to divide this message into these two parts, if you will. I want to talk about the burden of mourning that's here in Matthew 5.4. And I want to talk about the blessing of being comforted. So two simple parts to today's message. And I'm going to start with the burden of mourning. And there's a few things that I want to say about it because of Jesus' words. And the first is this. Grief is a normal part of the Christian life. Jesus says to us that you are blessed when you are mourning. You know, In our culture, we do everything we can to avoid loss. In our human nature, we do everything we can to avoid loss. And even to avoid facing into it or talking about it. You know, people are so uncomfortable when it comes to grief. Have you noticed? We don't know what to say. We don't want to say the wrong thing. And so we have this tendency to sort of shy away from people, perhaps at the time that they need us to draw closer to them. Oh, don't bother them. They're grieving. They're mourning. You know, in Jesus' day and in Jesus' culture, mourning looked very different than mourning does for us in our culture. In Jesus' culture, they actually had traditions around mourning the loss of a loved one. They did things that were specific and everybody knew that they were grieving because they were doing these certain things, even if they were a stranger and they happened to see them. They would tear their clothes, for instance, or they would roll in the dust, or they would throw ashes on top of themselves. In fact, they would refrain from washing or wearing perfume for several days. Now, what you notice about all of those customs that were familiar to Jesus' hearers in the first century in this Jewish culture, what you notice about all of those things is that they're noticeable. People knew. (laughs) You haven't had a bath in a while. (laughs) I wonder if you're grieving. (laughs) Oh, sorry, you're not. My bad. (laughs) 
But there were outward things that they did. Family gathered, friends gathered. They didn't scatter when people were mourning. As a matter of fact, if friends and family weren't available, literally people were hired to come and to mourn in the customary way. And so there were professional mourners, people who could be hired that would come and spend time so that you did not have to be alone in your grief. What a a different worldview. What a different perspective about grief. In a certain way, people in Jesus' day leaned into the process of grief. Whereas I think for all of us, the way we try to get through it is just to get around it. (laughs) We're afraid to go through it. But I think Jesus is telling us that in this world, we're going to have trouble. And he doesn't mince words about that. He wants us to understand that loss is a normal part of the Christian life. Now, that's important for us today also because there are versions of the gospel out there that are being preached that somehow give you the idea that if you're experiencing loss in this world, you're doing something wrong. That you're not praying enough. That, that somehow you haven't been faithful enough or that God is punishing you. And, and I want us to understand that that just doesn't fit with what you actually read in the pages of the New Testament, particularly with what Jesus had to say. As a matter of fact, he said, you are blessed if you find yourself in the position of mourning. And we'll look at that blessing in just a minute. Here's what I think he's also saying about this burden of mourning. It's that grief Grief is is, uh, experienced in an individual way. You know this to be true, don't you? Everyone experiences grief differently. And that's going to be the case for uh, all kinds of different losses. What I want you to know with regard to this uh, word of mourning is that it has to do with the loss, any kind of loss, not only death, but things or circumstances that are going on around us. All of our losses are individual and different to each one of us. Every person in this room has experienced a whole bunch of loss in recent months and in this last year. I'll get get more to that in just a minute. Grief takes time. We want to rush grief. We don't like it. We sometimes think there's something wrong with me if I feel sad or if I'm having a difficult time just being normal and pushing on like others perhaps think I'm supposed to be able to do. But the truth is grief is a process and it takes time. I love it when I leave pages elsewhere and I have no idea where I put them. I love the story that I came across this week. In the book, Stories for the Journey, William White tells about a European seminary professor named Hans, whose wife had passed away. Hans was so overcome with sorrow that he lost his appetite and didn't want to leave the house. Watch for signs like that in people. Are you with me? Concerned for him, the seminary president paid Hans a visit along with three other colleagues And the grieving professor confessed that he was struggling with doubt. I'm no longer able to pray to God, Hans admitted. In fact, I'm not certain I believe in God anymore. After a moment of silence, the seminary president said, then we will believe for you. We will pray 
for you. The four men met daily for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their friend. Some months later, as the four friends gathered for prayer with Hans, he smiled and said, it is no longer necessary for me to pray, for you to pray for me. Today, I would like you to pray with me. Do you like that? Maybe it could be so for us that we wouldn't somehow be so uncomfortable and insecure about our own faith that we have to shy away from someone who's suddenly questioning life and questioning God. Instead, perhaps we could draw near to them in that very moment, knowing that God is present. What I want to say in this message, and I'll get to the blessing here in a second, is that grief is a path to our growth and our healing. I want to invite you, as Jesus is inviting us to do, to turn something negative on its head. I want to invite you to think of grief as a positive. It's God's gift to us. It's a way for us to heal. Scripture actually has a lot to say about this. And as I was thinking about this beatitude, I couldn't help but think about Ecclesiastes 7. The scripture says these upside down things all the way through it. A good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. Did you know that's in the scripture? I was just visiting with um, Darlene uh, Jerome a few minutes ago and uh, Kenny's mom is 97, I think. She might be only 96, so don't tell her I told her that, told you that. But lately she's been struggling with some, a lot of physical issues. And I thought it was so tender. She said that they prayed with her the other night it's been a hard week for her particularly. And Bonnie's prayer, she started in praying. If you know dear Bonnie, she said, Lord, I'm ready anytime you want to take me home. Amen. And, you know, if you think about the truth of Ecclesiastes 7.1, you think about that. Birth is the beginning of our pain. <laughs> and death, for the believer, is a resolution. <laughs> it's a final healing all of those things. But to the world, that seems so upside down, right? But from the different perspective, a perspective of faith, well, that makes sense. It's better to go to a house of mourning, Solomon wrote, than to go to a house of feasting. Just agree or disagree. We're talking about the upside down beatitudes and trying to re-attitude ourselves. Do you believe that's true? Is it better to go to a funeral or a party? I mean, look at the wisdom of Scripture. It says it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And we think, well, how negative, <laughs> how dark, <laughs> how difficult. But if you stop and just think about it, at a party, it, it's likely that people might be a little irreverent about God or about eternity. You will not see that at a funeral. A funeral is an opportunity, if you will, to reevaluate what we've been doing with our lives. A serious face sometimes is much better than folly, than the happy circumstance, because it gives us pause and it gives us opportunity to say, what am I living for? What was it that I was really basing my hope upon that I'm so crushed by this circumstance? 
there is a perspective of eternity in the funeral home that does not exist at the house of the party. Grief becomes a path for us to grow. It becomes a path for us to see our lives from a different perspective or lens. And so this is how Jesus begins in Matthew 5, his Sermon on the Mount. He's going to talk to us about what really matters, about things we can't see, about reorienting our lives around the kingdom and lordship of Jesus, about his priorities that are very different than our human nature priorities. And this is a painful change for us. It's, it's hard for us to take up our cross daily. It's hard for us to let go of the things that we cling to for security and comfort in favor of only clinging to God for security and comfort. So this word, happy are those who mourn, is pentheo. And I want to read from a Bible dictionary. It's, it says that this is a verb used to denote the grief over loss. So again, not just death, but any loss or sin. Boy, did that catch my attention. <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn. And I got to thinking about this and you know, this also was everywhere in scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21. This is Paul, because sometimes we not only grieve for the dead, but we grieve for the living. We grieve for the circumstances that we're in right now. And Paul was grieving over the Corinthians, and here's why. He says, I'm afraid that when I come to you again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved. This is pantheo. It's the exact word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Over many who have sinned, earlier and have not repented of the impurity. In this case, sexual sin, debauchery, the house of parties in which they have indulged. Paul is mourning sin. He's grieving over sin. And, and Jesus is saying, blessed are you if your heart is tender enough to the things of God to grieve in the presence of sin. And grieving is a very different response than being judgmental. Are you with me? I think that we have a hard time dealing with somebody else's sin. We're, we're uncomfortable with it because we haven't learned how to grieve over our own sins. And that comes out in awkward ways. We, we want to dodge it. We don't want to talk to you if we know that you're involved in something you shouldn't be. Confrontation is the last thing we ever want to get involved with. <laughs> we want to avoid, avoid, avoid. Because we haven't learned to grieve our own sins and find healing from it. If, if we did that, we would so want that for our loved ones. We would be so desperate for their healing. But if we haven't learned to grieve over our own sins, we're not ready to do that for somebody else. Or sometimes the opposite is true. We come across really strongly against your sin and angry about your sin because we haven't learned to deal with our own sins ourselves. So Jesus said, be really careful if you feel like you need to pick that speck out of your brother's eye when all along you've got a huge log in your own. We need to learn to grieve over our sins. So he also said, this is 1 Corinthians, he said, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and you are proud. Do you see the difference? The pride versus the grieving. Which one are we about this world? Does the condition of this world genuinely break our heart? 
Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? Blessed are those who grieve. They're closer to the kingdom. Their, their hearts are tuned in to what Jesus' heart is tuned into. As you see the perspective of the world around you, you're beginning to see it from a kingdom perspective, an upside-down way of looking at it. And have Oh, and by the way, he says, you should have been filled with grief and you should have put them out of the fellowship. And you think, wait a minute, that's kind of harsh. Where's the grace in all of that? In Galatians 6.1, same author Paul says to the Galatians, and the book of Galatians is filled with grace. It's all about grace, 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 grace. In Galatians 6.1, he says, if you encounter a brother or sister who's stuck in sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. And that word restore is really interesting. It's the same word, a medical term used for setting a broken bone. And, and so, oh, you know, sometimes setting a bone is not a gentle process. <laughs> but, but you should do that with that attitude of healing. Because their sins should burden you so much because your own sin burdens you so much. It all comes back to the cross, doesn't it? Jesus Christ died for our sin. Jesus took on all of our sadness. Jesus took on all of our burden, all of the consequence of what we have done in rebellion to God's standards and God's kingdom and God's, God's way. He took it all upon himself. How could we not feel the mourning of our sin? Those within Jesus' hearing who don't get it, who still just want Jesus to conquer the Romans in his day, that's what was going on, those who don't understand that Jesus is headed for a cross don't get it. They don't mourn over their own sin. They just see those dirty Romans out there as the enemy. And the same temptation is true for us. It's just so much easier to look out at the world around us. But Jesus is inviting us to have a broken heart for the world around us. See, here's the thing. This isn't in your notes. But we are in the middle of a tidal wave of grief in our world right now. And it's catching up to people. We're, we're, even if you have not lost a loved one to COVID, perhaps you've lost a prom or a graduation or sitting with your loved one while they were dying or visiting your loved one in the nursing home. So many layers and layers and layers and layers of grief. You know, I wonder if this is a serious calling for the church in this generation right now is, is instead of shunning grief, it's to learn how to grieve well. And we've got to learn how to practice that in our own sorrow. We've got to learn how to open up. We've got to learn how to put things into words, whether it's circumstantial grief or the grief of sin. Jesus says you are blessed if you learn how to humble yourself in my presence. If you learn how to embrace this process of healing that I have in mind for you, this process of breaking in order for mending to happen. The burden of mourning. There is, oh, and James adds to this. He uses actually the same words, which I found interesting. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
change your laughter to mourning. Did you know this in the Bible? I mean, literally, it's everywhere in the Bible. Grieve, grieve, grieve. This word grieve um, has to do with feeling it. Uh, mourn is the same word I just pointed out, pantheo from the Sermon on the Mount. Wail, that's kind of an interesting word. It's clio, uh, and it's a, I'll say more about that word in a second, but, but it's weeping specifically connected to the rituals associated with mourning a death. So this word, wail, is associated with what people did when someone died, if that, if that makes sense. I mean, this is a really serious, heavy verse that James says. And he's addressing people that are just going about their world and about their lives as if it's all just about today. Grieve. Wail. Mourn. Let me talk about the blessing of consolation. Because really the good part isn't that we mourn. The good part is what comes as a consequence for our mourning well. And that's opening our hearts and opening our lives to God's blessing. Consolation. Comfort is always a shared experience. I want you to think with me a little bit about consolation as we bring this around full circle to what Jesus had to say. Comfort is always a shared experience. Romans 12, Paul tells us, blessed are those who persecute you. Do you know where Paul quoted that from? <laughs> we just read it in Matthew 5, right? This is Sermon on the Mount stuff. Blessed are those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Again, the opposite, don't be proud. But be willing to associate with people of low position. What, what could that be? That could be people of low circumstance, that they are experiencing loss and difficulty. They're not cursed of God. They need you. Be willing to associate with people of low position. How about those who have sinned and who are grieving that? Go grieve with them. Draw near to them. Do not be conceited. Blessed are those who mourn over the reality of what it means to live in this world. There is sadness, there is sin. But who recognize kingdom perspective and God's rule in the midst of all of these things. The problem is, I, I just think that by and large, we're lost in knowing how to grieve. And our temptation, human temptation has always been this way, is to isolate ourselves from one another in those circumstances where we really, really, really need to push in close. So maybe as a practical thing, who do you know that's going through a difficult circumstance? And would you be willing, in spite of themselves, to draw near to them? You know, the more serious the loss, the fewer words you actually need. I mean, if it's a bad hair day, you could probably talk for half an hour. It's not very serious. If it's the loss of a son or the loss of a spouse or something really serious, actually fewer words are needed. Your presence is what's needed the most. For them to know that, that they're not alone, 
It's the simple thing that they need the most. Know that people who are grieving around you, just, just in our culture, they aren't open about it. They're not going to throw a bunch of dirt on their heads so that you know and stop sh- shaving and so forth so that you know that they're grieving. <laughs> and it's too bad. Because sometimes we need a visual cue. Some of you remember Bob McFadden at our church? He lost his wife, Irene. And he told me about a month later after that experience, he said, it's really hard for me to come to church because as soon as I come in, I feel like I'm, I'm the object of everybody's attention. And they always ask me this question, how are you? He says, I don't want to answer that question. What we, we, need, we need sensitivity training. <laughs> we, we need to learn how to approach someone and, and just say, I'm glad you're here. They know they're sad. They know you can't fix it. But what is it in us that causes us to, to, to not want to make that contact? Just know that that person doesn't want to walk in the door. Somehow, church, how can we do this? How can we receive God's blessing by learning how to do this, by learning how to mourn, by, by learning how to come alongside, by learning how to be vulnerable? We need to figure that out. Because I'm convinced that the blessing comes when we figure it out. For they will be comforted. And this is the one thing I know about it, is is that it is a shared experience. You don't provide this gift for yourself. You're either giving comfort or you're receiving comfort. It's not something you do for yourself. It's a shared experience. It's possible to live the Christian life on your own, I guess, and to believe all the right things. But we're never meant to live isolated and alone. We're meant to live in close community. We're meant to share things like this, to bear each other's burdens. That's kingdom life. We know that God comforts us through his word. And there are so many specific promises to point to. That God's word becomes a food for us. It becomes a sustenance to us. If you find yourself in grief, dig in. Open God's word. Get involved in a study. Find a a group that that you can pour yourself into and learn and grow and, and, and develop. You know, your small group life, it's either the first thing that goes when you're busy or it's the last thing that goes when you're busy. And it's a reflection of where you're at. God comforts us through his word if we make ourselves available to him that way. God comforts us through his church. That's what I've been talking about this whole time. That's his plan. There's so many one another's in the Bible. We can't one another without one another. Love one another. Forgive one another. Bless one another. Serve one another. We need one another. And how about this? God comforts us through his spirit. When Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, the term for the Holy Spirit is the counselor or the comforter. God blesses the humble. God blesses those who know their need. That's what The Beatitudes are all about. It's about readjusting away from our independence toward total dependence upon God. There's so much interplay between all of the Beatitudes. The the poor in spirit, I love that it's first because I think that you find this bankruptcy 
in and of ourselves, just, just flowing through the rest of the Beatitudes. And I want to end the right way. I want to give you this reassurance that grief is temporary. And if I couldn't say that, I don't know that the rest of anything else that I've said would make sense. But it is sometimes at a, a funeral versus a social gathering or a football game that we think about that, that God wins. That Jesus came into the world and lost everything on purpose and it looks like all is defeated. But Christ is risen. And he's alive. And he's coming back. As we move into a time of reflection and open worship, I want to read from the end of the book and just invite you to hear these words from Revelation. And if you have a Bible with you, maybe you'll turn to Revelation chapter 21. And as we take a few minutes to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to any one of us personally about what's happening in our hearts, if you're prompted to share with all of us, please do. Write in the comments if you're online. Use this microphone if you're in the fellowship hall or this room. You're welcome to do that. Or we may end up with this time strictly in silence. Either way, we'll let God figure that out for us. But maybe you would have these words open to you for these moments. Revelation 21. I think about Paul in that cave. We, we went to the traditional cave of Patmos where it is, and it, it actually probably is because it's a really small island, and it's, it's, I think that's where they put a prisoner. How defeated he must have been. How difficult to think for John that, did I say Paul? John, I knew that. How difficult for John to be the only one of the disciples living and all of his friends killed and dead. But to know that he believed what he believed because he saw it. He saw Christ risen. But he will not give up his faith. Well, blessed is John, who is suffering. And to this humble soul and this humble spirit, he sees a new heaven and a new encouragement that must have been to him. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. <laughs> there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am 
the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end.